I think we really have underestimated the influence of the global financial crash on opening the way for technology capital um, to uh, kind of move into cities, to move into our lives um, in, in ways that they weren't before. As soon as the bottom fell out of the economy uh, and, and the kind of financial sector had taken this big hit, um, the people with money to spend became Silicon Valley, it became the venture capitalists, it became the technology companies. That is Jathan Sadowski talking about his new book, Too Smart, How Digital Capitalism is Extracting Data, Controlling Our Lives, and Taking Over the World. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. The new book is Too Smart, How Digital Capitalism is Extracting Data, Controlling Our Lives, and Taking Over the World. But one of the first things we always like to do on New Books and Technology is find out about the author. So who is Jathan Sadowski? Yeah, Jathan Sadowski. <laughs> so I, I uh, it, it, it's, it's a good question. So I, I guess my background in an academic sense is um, I did my PhD in science and technology studies. So really trying to focus on understanding these kind of social and human side of technology. Uh, but if we trace it back even further, I originally started um, my undergraduate degree as a polymer chemistry major. So I was really into like the hard sciences. Like in high school, I was in like AP physics and AP chemistry and was like, you know, pretty dead set that like material chemistry is what I was going to do with my life. I found it the kind of material properties uh, of, of, of new things. I found really interesting the ability to synthetically make stuff, which is what polymer chemistry is, right? It's the, the kind of synthetic rubbers and plastics and materials and stuff like that. So I, I, I went to Rochester Institute of Technology, one of like three schools in the country that had a specific polymer chemistry degree, mm-hmm. um, moved across the country to do it. That's how dedicated I was to it. And then after a couple years of doing that, I ended up just kind of randomly taking a uh, philosophy course. And it was like this kind of light bulb moment where I was like, oh, wow, I'm actually so much more interested in this kind of side of science and technology um, than the actual, like I had been working in a lab as a lab assistant by that point and all of that. Um, So pretty quickly, uh, almost spontaneously, it seems in retrospect, I completely changed my major from polymer chemistry to philosophy Mm. (laughs) and ended up focusing on uh, the department there had a lot of people that were working on political philosophy as well as philosophy of technology. Um, so I really kind of ended up focusing on both of those sides of, 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 of it uh, and ended up working on a National Science Foundation project where the two PIs were a philosopher of technology and a civil engineer. Mm. And so I worked as the, the research assistant on that project. And I feel like that is where thing like my kind of trajectory as far as what the things I became interested in, how I ended up working on it, 
was really shaped by the experiences of working on a project about sustainability ethics with a philosopher and with an engineer and being able to kind of communicate across those those worlds, work with both of those kinds of people. Um, and that's what ultimately led me to discovering and uh, 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 science and technology studies as a discipline. And I ended up going to um, Arizona State University to to work on that uh, that subject, which is where I then kind of stumbled into as well, uh, working on what became my dissertation project and what really kind of laid the foundation for the book itself, um, which was on smart cities, on smart urbanism. So kind of looking at the, the kind of politics of smart technology, of digital technology, ICT. Um, I ended up working while doing my master's, uh, working on a project there around urban technology. And so that kind of really gave me an interest in this, the urbanness, the urbanism of technology, but also that kind of geographical placeness of technology. The idea that these these kind of digital immaterial, um, quote unquote, immaterial technologies are are actually deeply material. They exist in places, not just cyberspace, but real life. <laughs> um, and, and so that really kind of shaped how I ended up looking at technology um, in, in the way that I do now. So wait, so philosophy. And <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> philosophy, then science and technology studies. How, how do we get from philosophy to science and technology studies? And what has philosophy brought to your, you know, study of, as you call it, urban technology? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I, I guess the, the, the easy answer is how we get from philosophy to science and technology studies, for me at least, is that um, I finished my philosophy degree like a, like a year early and there's still time on this NSF project and the engineer on the, who was the PI on the project just got a new job at ASU and was like, if you got nothing else come, going on, why don't you move out to Phoenix with us? Like, well, you can work full time as an RA on this project and then figure it out from there. I moved there and ended up getting plugged into um, the, it wasn't an STS department per se, but it was this kind of, uh, it was called the Consortium for Science Policy and Outcomes. It was this really kind of STS inflected science and technology policy think tank um, in the university. So I ended up getting plugged in there and they had a master's degree in applied ethics of science and technology. So I was like, all right, let me do this and figure out if I want to do the PhD. And that was really the bridge. So I got my PhD there as well in uh, uh, what a degree that they called the human and social dimensions of science and technology, which is what's on my diploma. It's like three lines on my diploma. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so I was kind of that bridge between doing a what a bachelor's of science in philosophy, which is itself also very weird to have a BS in philosophy. And there's lots of jokes that <laughs> need to go on set there. Um, <laughs> uh, but, and then linking it up to 
doing a PhD in social sciences. And what now I would kind of classify my work and myself as doing more kind of geographical political economy of mm -hmm. technology. I've really adopted geography as my home discipline. Those are those tend to be the conferences I go to. Um, increasingly, that's where I kind of aim a lot of my work is in geography journals as far as like academic journals and stuff. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with, of course, my interest in doing a PhD on smart cities, that kind of urban geography, um, where, it's, where that was where a lot of the very early um, work around smart cities was happening was it was within this urban geography field. Um, but I really also became super interested in political economy as an approach. Um, and, you know, kind of asking these questions that really informed the book, which I would see as a political economy of smart technology and digital capitalism um, as a whole, but really asking these questions about whose interests are represented in these, these systems, these technological systems, these economic and political systems, right? What are the kind of underlying imperatives there that are, are driving how people are acting, how these systems operate, um, you know, and really kind of getting into the nitty gritty, both in, in terms of uh, trying to understand the technical operations, uh, but also the kind of what's been called the operations of capital or these kind of capitalist operations, right? To try to, and, and my work is really trying to bring those together in a way that trying to understand that they those talk to each other the kind of technical side of it as well as that political economic side of it are, are for me just like unable to be disentangled or extricated from from each other and um, it was kind of my experience that a lot of the most interesting and exciting work in political economy was happening within the discipline of geography mm -hmm. um, and so that really is what drew me towards uh, kind of this long journey of starting as a chemist and then a philosopher and then doing a PhD in STS and now really seeing myself as more of this political economist, geography, digital geographies guy. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's been a, a long and twisting journey. I can like kind of retroactively backcast a narrative over it, which I think we all can with our lives, but there's so many different points where I just where I know that if I had made a slightly different decision or if I had not met this person or kind of fallen into this opportunity, then I could imagine my career being something totally different. And I might be looking at something totally different and working somewhere totally different. And you know so it's 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 really interesting. But I I'm happy with how it's turned out. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we get to too smart? A lot of people ask me if the book is my dissertation book, and it's really more of the all the stuff I was thinking and working on while not doing my dissertation book. Because <laughs> <laughs> my, my dissertation was very narrowly focused on the kind of politics and visions of smart cities and particularly uh, really digging deep into IBM and Cisco as these kind of two main actors leading the way for the smart city vision. It's the dissertation where it's simultaneously everything in the kitchen sink, but also digging super narrowly, wedging into a very specific thing. The book is much broader because uh, my interest 
were much broader while doing my PhD. I was reading all about different smart technology and digital technology and emerging ICT across all kinds of sectors, right? The quantified self, 3D printing, basically any kind of emerging digital ICT captivated my interest. I wanted to know more about it. So I was constantly reading and thinking about all this, also writing about it from time to time as a way to procrastinate productively from my dissertation. Um, so when I came, when it came time, and yeah, I was lucky enough to get um, a postdoc. It wasn't my first job out of out of my PhD. I spent a year as a visiting lecturer um, in a teaching only job at TU Delft in the Netherlands, which was which was great. Um, but I was lucky enough to get a postdoc at the University of Sydney, which gave me a lot of time to really kind of like organize my thoughts, mm -hmm. um, organize all of the disparate pieces of writing and thinking I had been doing and decide that I wanted to put it all together into a book. And I wanted to do it in a, a as a book that would have that kind of academic analysis and research behind it, but be written about a topic and in a style that really tries to speak much broader, not just broader in the sense of outside of my own discipline, but outside of academia, I wanted to target a broader audience. And so in doing so, I wanted to write a book that had a lot more breadth to it um, than what my dissertation had. And so I saw this as a great opportunity to try to create this like, you know, general theory of smart technology. Um, and, and so that's how we really get to, to, to smart, where I'm really trying to understand these different smart technologies that are oftentimes looked at dis discreetly, disparately from each other, right? So, you know, you've got the quantified self over here, and then you've got smart cities over there. You've got the smart home over here, and you've got, you know, digital telematics at work over here. And but I wanted to tie all that together. I wanted to say, you know, we call all these things smart, but we don't often think about them as, as a singular as kind of system. We don't think about them together. We think about them separately. But that's kind of unique. That's an analytic, an artificial analytical division that we as academics or journalists do. But the companies making it don't do that. The venture capitalists funding it don't do that, right? Like IBM calls um, their umbrella initiative the smarter planet. Just mm. to give you a sense of the ambition that they're working with, they call the 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 kind of unit that they're working with is what they call the system of systems. Um, similarly, uh, Cisco calls it the network of networks. And so for them, it is a kind of mega system with a lot of kind of subsystems below it, but ultimately all connected, all being driven toward one single ambition, one single goal. Um, so I said, well, let me take a page out of their book, right? I spent all this time digesting how they think about the world, how they think about technology and critiquing it, right? Kind of mapping it out, critiquing it. So well, let me let me approach it from their position, but do so for a, for a different goal than they than they have. Um, and so that was really kind of the impetus behind behind the book. One of the things you say in the book is that you want to kind of uncover uh, the strength of corporate influences over uh, why things are the way they are, particularly with technology, urban technology in particular. Can you talk about that a bit? Like, so when you talked about IBM and in the book, you talk a bit about Amazon and Google, of course, mm -hmm. the big, obviously the mega 
corporations, but how are corporations and, and other powerful organizations influencing how we respond to technology and the deployment of technology upon us? Yeah, so I think with the recent, what's been termed the tech lash and this kind of recent turn towards a more mainstream, critical look at technology, people are kind of, it's becoming much more obvious and people are becoming aware that that these corporations have a lot of power over um, what technologies are designed, how they're used, and for what purposes. Uh, You mentioned you know, Amazon, I, there's a point in the book where I talk about how I didn't set out to write a book about Amazon, but the book is kind of low-key about Amazon <laughs> <laughs> because as I was like diving into all these different spaces, right? Like I have a chapter on the smart self where I'm looking at how technologies are being used, um, not by us, but on us in a kind of really personal way. I have a, techno- a, a, a chapter on the smart home, on the smart city. As I was looking into these different spaces and places where these technologies are playing out, I kept stumbling across Amazon at every single turn. They had something here. They had something there. They were in the retail space. They're in the cloud infrastructure space. They're in the facial recognition space, right? Like they're they're everywhere. Um, and and Amazon is not unique in that, but they are uniquely kind of large and monopolistic and powerful in in, in that. And and that kind of corporate influence is really important because if you look at like the kind of I mean, that influence dictates, um, you know, in a strong sense, in a weaker sense, it, it influences or it guides uh, the kinds of technologies we have, right? The, the, the values that are built into them, the purposes that motivate them, right? The, the decisions about uh, doing things one way and not another way, prioritizing some goals over other goals and including some people while excluding other voices and values from that. Uh, and, and, and that's not uh, unique to the corporations. That's just part of technological design in general. There's always going to be choices, um, these social choices, that, that, and there's always going to be possible alternatives that are not explored or completely kind of shut off or unimagined. I think the important question there is asking um, who's making those choices, whose interests are represented. And it's impossible not to look at technology and, and the way things are, are, are built without just kind of recognizing that the single most influential voice there is a corporate voice. It's a voice of these um, big technology corporations, but also, I mean, kind of that whole financial ecosystem to use their own jargon, right, around kind of uh, what venture capitalists decide to fund and invest in, the kinds of people, um, the kinds of things they think will be profitable or disruptive or whatever, uh, you know, all, all, of, all of that really shapes uh, the kind of technologies that we have. And, and even more importantly, right, the book is really informed by this kind of techno-political approach, which traces back to like Langdon Winner in particular, um, this understanding of technology as legislation, not just metaphorically, but almost in a real literal sense, legislation in the sense that it has the power to kind of structure society, 
um, to shape our lives, what we can and can't do, what is and isn't allowed. If we accept this frame that technology has this kind of legislative power over society, um, then we have to, the next question is to ask who are the legislators? For the most part, it's these technology corporations um, and the people that work there, the entrepreneurs, the executives, the engineers who work um, in Silicon Valley in the, the kind of corporate world who are largely doing it. It's, of course, they're not the only ones because they partner with other powerful organizations. And this is something I, I really try to explore in the book. I, I really try to ask questions about um, who are we overlooking? Who are we not thinking about when we think about the political economy of technology? Because you know, as I, as I uh, mentioned just a little bit ago, it's, it's pretty obvious now the corporate influence. Mm -hmm. It's widely accepted. Um, and widely accepted as, if, if not a full-out like detrimental uh, and harmful influence, then at least one that deserves some skepticism. Um, we no longer just accept uh, that Zuckerberg really wants to connect the world for the good of, of connection. We no longer accept that Jeff Bezos is, you know, and, and Elon Musk are, are these like, you know, beneficial innovators who are really there to drive progress, right? We, we don't accept that on face value anymore. But there's a lot of other organizations involved who are also um, partnering with, as well as creating their own bespoke technologies, um, really trying to get in on this, on this too smart society for their own benefit. Um, so for example, in, in my chapter on smart homes, uh, my analysis there, I spend a lot of time really, you know, fleshing out the role that the insurance industry has had uh, and, and is likely to have in kind of shaping how and why smart home technologies are adopted um, and what their implications are. And this is something that, you know, that well, it's been called InsureTech in the same kind of realm as like FinTech and all these other, you know, add a prefix to technology. But it, insurance technology has been largely overlooked, um, I think in large part because the insurance industry is really kind of esoteric and complex, but also just boring. I mean, what could be, you know, <laughs> there's, there's nothing exciting about, you know, actuarial science and, and like the, the contracts of an insurance industry. It's something we actively try to avoid and for good reason, but I think also by design because it prevents us from really digging deep into what they're doing and how they're doing it. But the insurance industry has been aware of the Internet of Things, aware of data analytics, aware of AI for, for quite a while. Um, you get this if you read the kind of trade rags of the insurance industry. They talk, they've been talking about this for a while. And now they're, they're really kind of real powerful like diving headfirst over technology, really thinking, how, how are we going to use big data? How are we, what are they doing? And then how does that link up to this? How are we going to use structure of what I call digital? doing but do it better. Could you explain what you mean by technopolitics uh, and also right. digital capitalism and how they connect? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, technopolitics for me is is the kind of theoretical approach that really informs um, the book. 
And, and so as I mentioned, technopolitics is really informed by the work of Langdon Winner. Uh, and here he calls it technological politics. Um, you know, I shortened it to technopolitics and it's kind of my own take on it, but it is very much from him. And, and so the, the kind of basic premise is that uh, understanding each phase of the technical process, right, from the design to the use uh, of a technology as loaded with politics um, at every phase, every step, uh, and even kind of born of politics, right, that there's a political motivations behind why something is is built and really you know i guess kind of taking that back a step too what is politics uh, really kind of understanding politics in this this pithy way of who gets what when where and how um, so it really is a question of 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 this conflict of values and interest right this uh, not only conflict, but competition between whose values are going to be represented, who's going to benefit, and who's going to lose from certain decisions and choices. Um, so really understanding politics in this way of values and interests and benefits. And that, you know, if some people will be represented and some people will win and some people will be excluded and some people will lose. Um, and so really technopolitics is taking that understanding of politics and applying it to the technical process, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding that technology is political because it is about um, some people having the power to make technologies, some people having the privilege to use technologies uh, in ways that benefit them, um, and some people having to deal with the fact that technologies are used on them um, or that they are made to use technologies uh, that they may not want to use. Um, so a perfect example of a kind of techno-politics at play is another example I use in, in the book um, of this device called the Car Starter Interrupt Device. It's truly bizarre, and it's a, it's a technology that most people are completely unaware of, even though millions of people in the U.S. are forced to use it um, every single day. And, and so it's a device that an auto lender, a creditor, will mandate is installed in the vehicles of someone that has a that is a subprime auto uh, 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 has a subprime auto loan mm -hmm. so it's this device that the um, the lender the creditor can use to track when and where um, people are driving. They can use it to create kind of geofenced locations that prevent people from driving outside of certain areas or outside of certain times of days uh, as, a, as a kind of policy condition to their auto loan um, because they're subprime and so they're deemed highly risky. They're deemed, um, you know, that they a, a high possibility that they may not pay back um, the loan on time. And so they're saddled with these these onerous, not only high interest rates, but also these policy conditions, these loan conditions. And the auto car or the auto uh, interrupt device can also um, be used to remotely shut off a vehicle. So if you miss a payment, um, uh, there's been reports by even, you know, a day, then the, the, the auto lender can use a smartphone 
pull up your car and with a click of a button, just shut off the engine of your car. So you can't start your car again until mm. you uh, pay your debt. And this has been used. Uh, there's reports of it being you uh, of the impact of this being truly horrendous stuff. Right? There was a court case in Nevada uh, where somebody where where uh, the the person with the loan um, alleged that the auto lender had shut off the car while she was driving on the highway, mm. and so she lost control of her vehicle. Um, and luckily, no one got hurt. Um, but you know that's terrible. There's reports uh, of people getting their cars shut off, um, you know, while they were fueling up at a gas station and they had their three kids in the back seat um, and their car was shut off and they were stranded from home and they didn't know what to do, right? So these really horrendous things. Um, and that's purely technopolitics and in, 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 in operation right there because you've got you've got the power aspect there, right? That there's an auto lender who has a lot more power over the person with the loan. Um, and, and now the technology is kind of intensifying that and, and transforming that power in new ways, where now they can do this kind of remote repossession, right? You are basically driving with the repo man or, or repo person in, in the, uh, you know, riding shotgun with you at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're always under the threat of being repoed. Uh, it, so you've got the power there. You've got the whole reason why this technology even exists. Uh, is because you've got a powerful organization, the auto credit or you know institution or industry, um, who said, oh, we would really like another way to control uh, the people that we give loans out to, particularly these subprime people who we see as really risky and you know they're 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 you know they're they're, they're pretty bad people. Um, and so we really want a way to control them and make sure that we get our payments on time every time. And so. You know, companies said, well, we can provide a solution for you. You know, we've got just the thing. Mm-hmm. And and the, and the fact as well that uh, there's uh, reports that one of the uh, main technologies um, or pro- the technology providers of this car starter interrupt device initially started by building uh, tracking devices for pets. And wow. so they just, so they, uh, you know, they, they took that technology and transformed it into what became the car starter interrupt device. And if that doesn't just speak volumes, right, that you create a technology so you can keep tabs on um, and track a pet in case they run away. And you say, oh, well, we could use that same technology to keep tabs on and track people um, that are deemed subprime. Mm-hmm. So is it safe to say that Too Smart is a book about power? It's completely a book about power. It, and, and that's really uh, what motivates almost all of my work, right? I work a lot on technology. I work a lot on it through this kind of political economy um, lens. And, but, but ultimately what motivates my book is questions about power. That's really what brought me to studying the technologies that I do in the way that I do, because I was interested about how does power operate in society? Who does power operate on? Who's, oper- who, who's, who's wielding it? And how is that changing? Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you just living now, you get this sense that things are changing. Something is afoot. Um, you know, the, 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 the people, there's some people seem to have more ability and capacity to do stuff, whereas other people don't. And so I really, you know, 
that that kind of feeling, I wanted to provide a little bit more analytical rigor um, to exploring that. And so, yeah, this book is completely about power. As I would say, my essentially my whole career, everything I write uh, about is is ultimately about power, and it's just really about different ways um, and the kind of technical ways that power is manifesting and operating today. Mm-hmm. So you're you're actually located though in Australia. Is the Australian context different from the U.S. context? And if so, how? Yeah. So yeah. So I'm I'm at Monash University in Melbourne. I uh, just moved here a few weeks ago, so it's still a pretty fresh job. But yeah, I was in Sydney for for a few years. Um, so yeah, with the Australian context, it's very similar in a lot of ways to the U.S. context um, in terms of the the kinds of technologies that are being used and how they're being used. There's a lot of similarities here. I will say, though, that it's a kind of like less ramped up version. <laughs> the, the the U.S. It, you know, the U.S. is a land of contrast and a land of extremes. They tend to do everything um, to the max <laughs> in a way that isn't quite rolled out other places to the same degree. Not for lack of trying, though. Yeah. Not for lack of trying. Um, and, and so it's a lot of what I... A lot of my my research does focus on the U.S. I'm originally from you know, I'm originally from the U.S. and 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 that just tends to be where a lot of a lot of stuff is happening. It's really kicking off in a lot of ways um, in the U.S. and but. At the same time, I do do a lot of Australian-focused work. Um, so I, I did a really big project on smart cities in Australia. This big ethnographic project. Um, I've, I, I very much keep track with what's happening here because it is where I live now. Um, and I will say that a lot of the kinds of analyses that I have developed by looking at the U.S. Um, they they are very that it is very relevant for the Australian system. It's not so different. Um, rather, it's just more kind of differences in manifestation, right? So, for example, the corporate influence question, kind of going back to early in the interviews, is interesting in terms of the smart city in Australia because this is actually a big difference. Um, whereas smart urbanism in the U.S. Uh, as well as but many other places around the world, in the UK and Europe and South America, uh, has been largely dominated by this kind of corporate influence, this corporate model of what the smart city means and how it's to be rolled out. That's not the case in Australia. Australia has largely evaded that kind of really corporate-dominated smart urbanism for many different reasons. I mean... On, on one hand, it's because Australia was um, somewhat of a late adopter to the smart city, um, to this kind of movement uh, than other places, particularly in the U.S. And, and in Europe, which have been at it for, for much longer. So there's this kind of late adoption. The Australian market is comparatively much smaller, right? It's a landmass the size of the U.S., but it's only, but it's got like eight percent of the American population, um, and so you know, it's like twenty five 
million people. So it's a smaller market, so it's not as attractive. Um, and as well, the, the political system here, the, the relationship between local government, um, state government, and federal government is quite complex. Um, there's a lot of feedback and a lot of kind of contestation between these three levels of government um, in a way that prevents uh, or makes it at least makes it really difficult for a company like IBM or Cisco um, to kind of come in and, you know, corner uh, the mayor of a big city like Melbourne and, and say, and, and you kind of give them the hard pitch and then get all these contracts and, and, and be able to run all these projects and initiatives because the cities here don't really have a, that kind of strong mayor system. Um, there's a lot of, of, of sharing of power between um, council, the kind of elected politicians and people, the, the planners and the professionals um, within the city government. Uh, and so all of these different factors have played into a type of smart city that has, that's kind of uh, what me and, and some of my colleagues um, have called vendor agnostic. Um, so it's really kind of solution oriented. Um, it's, it's not caught up in uh, buying wholesale, this kind of suite of services and, and, and technologies from one company. Uh, and, and so I think that is actually a really interesting way in which technology uh, like the smart city is, has developed differently here than it has in the U.S., Ultimately, there are a lot of very similar goals and motivations behind the technology, but it does matter as well that Australia wasn't hit nearly as hard by the global financial crash, the Great Recession, mm. um, as everywhere else in the world. They really escaped a lot of that. And so they haven't been under this kind of hard austerity, um, this this kind of hard depression or, or you know, economic recession in the way that the U.S., um, the U.K., Europe has been. So what do you hope people take away from it? I just hope they take away a bit more of a kind of critical and critically political sensibility um, of the technologies that exist all around us now, right? I hope they take away from it this idea that technology is def is not neutral, it's not apolitical, it's not deterministic, um, but beyond that, it's something it's it, it's something much more, um, and it, and it really does mean a lot, right? Control over technology, um, how it's made, how we use it, how it's used on us uh, is, I think, one of the most pressing issues of our time, of what it means to live in this society right now. Um, and kind of understanding that requires having this more political tact towards how we engage with and how we think about technology. Right, I kind of opened the book with this chapter on how to think about technology, where I lay out like this kind of more of this sensibility. Um, but then I end the chapter, or I rather I end the book as well with with 
outlining what I call these kind of three tactics for a dumber world, right? The title of the book, Too Smart, really comes from a longer phrase that I, I use in this final chapter that um, these technologies have become too smart for our own good, mm-hmm. right? Um, so this kind of political sensibility should then shape um, how we respond to these technologies and how we how we resist them, how we think about reframing, remaking, um, reshaping them, and do so in this in this in this way that really takes uh, inspiration from political movements, from political tactics and strategizing. Uh, and and directs those towards how we think about um, this kind of a critical resistance to technology, but also a critical appropriation of technology. It's not just about resisting. It's not just about critiquing um, what what ex- you know what already exists. It definitely has to be this positive uh, project as well about kind of creating. The new world, a new world that we want to live in, about um, you know, kind of recognizing the power of uh, technology without uh, kind of wholesale rejection of technology, right? Because we need technologies to do stuff for us that actually benefit, you know, the vulnerable people, the marginalized people, the everyday person. Um, we are, we do we. We do want these things to to benefit us and to kind of improve our lives, improve society um, in new ways. And and but it's really hard to think about that because I think as well this kind of uh, there, there's been this political project to kind of dominate our imagination of technology. Mm-hmm. Right to make it where yeah, you know, I, I always go back to the famous quote by Margaret Thatcher where she declared um, there is no alternative. Right, and here she was talking about neoliberalism, about her, uh, about the cons- the UK Conservative Party's kind of economic and political project in the eighties, um, and which still exists today. But that's that's it's a perfect example because. It shows how declaring and then acting as if there is no alternative uh, is, of course, that's not true, but it might as well be true if we accept it as true, if we act as if that is the case. Um, And kind of taking a page out out of Thatcher's playbook, we can see how uh, the technology companies from IBM to Amazon to you know the 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 most aspiring startup that we don't even know the name of yet, right? They all talk in this same exact way. They all um, kind of first before they even make anything, uh, they they first kind of play out their vision of the world in this kind of battlefield of the imagination. Uh, and so I think we need to reclaim our imagination mm-hmm. back from from these these companies, from these um, inf- these these powerful influences. But again, we can't do that unless we recognize that this is a political project. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what's next for you? 
What's next is, well, so, so I've just started a new position uh, at the Emerging Technologies Research Lab in Monash, um, working with some really fantastic social scientists within a faculty of information technology. So it's a really interesting place to be in this social science research lab uh, with with just fantastic people who have been working on uh, digital emerging technologies for a while. And so I think what's next for me is really uh, exploring new, new topics, right? Kind of taking some of the stuff that I've touched on in the book and in other parts of my work um, and kind of closing one chapter of my research career and trying to open up a new one. By, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so in particular, um, I'm, I'm, I've, there's a big project in the lab I've joined called Digital Energy Futures. Um, so really starting to look at the ways in which utility companies um, are modeling and forecasting the, the, the energy future um, and, and thinking about how kind of smart technologies, digital technologies uh, are playing into the production and provision and distribution and forecasting of energy um, of electricity which is you know obviously something very very important right now um, as we are on the brink of climate catastrophe right with the wildfires here in australia mm -hmm. and then immediately after the wildfires there's just been massive flooding and so it's like fire or flood um, uh, we you know and, and so that's something really important so i'm excited to to work on that um, my, as far as, uh, what I'm thinking for my own projects as well, my kind of next own projects, um, I, I'm, I'm diving a lot more into insurance technology. Mm -hmm. It's something that I devoted a section of, uh, in, uh, to it in my book. It's something I've written about here and there. Um, I, I've just had, uh, or will or will have very soon an article coming out in real life magazine. Um, about insurance technology. So it's something that I really want to sink my teeth into further um, because I think it is really, really important, right? The insurance industry, talk about power, right? The insurance industry has the power to control access to what are our, our essential services. And insurance has this really important social function of kind of pooling risk um, in society, of providing security to people in the face of, of, of catastrophe, of, of disaster. Um, but as we see in the, the, the insurance industry embracing the use of these technologies more, I'm very worried that uh, it's shifting even more so from this kind of public utility benefit to um, the private benefit, as well as uh, this amplified power to kind of discipline policyholders in, in new ways. Um, and so for me, that's something that I'm really trying to focus more on uh, and, and trying to get a project going around just mapping out this weird intersection between the technology sector and the insurance industry um, and how these people are coming together, how the, you know, capital and investment um, is coming together to create these new technologies uh, that are, you know, somewhat worrisome, I think. <laughs> Thank you.